The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? Serenity now, good people of the internet. From the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood, and if there was any silver lining to the COVID-1984 flu d'etat, it would be the lessons we learned about just how easy it is for the big machine to engineer the illusion of scientific consensus, how overeager many of our peers are to give in to the fear-mongering and conform to whatever is needed to get their gold star from the state, and how the solution to any problem seems to be hacking away at our freedoms and the general joys of life. Now that it's over, it's easy to forget how extreme it really was. Yellow caution tape wrapped around parks and beaches, aggressive mask mandates, bans on backyard gatherings, forced closures of small business, mass layoffs for jab non-compliance, travel restrictions, and watching loved ones die alone from remdesivir and ventilators behind glass. We're fortunate to be through the woods, but when people like today's guest Mark Morano warn that COVID was just a dry run for much more intense and long-lasting restrictions due to the climate crisis, a lot of us better listen up, because we can expect to see much of the same playbook dusted off, in addition to a compliance-based digital currency that can be throttled appropriately, increased monitoring of our activities online and off, and more restrictions on what we can do and even eat. If you thought a pandemic robbed you of too much time, when is a climate crisis over? Well, Mark is here to not only break down the nefarious plans of the controller class, but also why we should be not afraid. By poking all the right holes in their claims for why such restrictions and protocols would be necessary, as well as why the proposed green energy solutions are trash too. And he is just the guy to do it as he is a former staff member of the U.S. Senate Environmental and Public Works Committee, a Director of Communications for the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, or CFACT, the curator of ClimateDepot.com, a true wealth of information on the subject, and the author of books like The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, Green Fraud, Why the Green New Deal is Even Worse Than You Think, and The Great Reset, Global Elites, and The Permanent Lockdown. So let's do the damn thing. The jet-setting, policy-crafting, control freaks, hypocrisy highlighter, Green New Deal destroyer, and climate crisis caller-outer, Mark Morano. Welcome to the higher side. Hey, thank you so much, Greg, for having me on. I appreciate it. I couldn't have done a better introduction if I'd written it myself. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you. I'm honored. I'm honored. (laughs) Oh, nice. Well, I very much look forward to doing this. You know, so much about the topic and how they plan to use it for more control, wealth extraction, all the World Economic Forum's wet dreams. I actually discovered you recently through a debate you had with Bill Nye on the Pierce Morgan show that, funny enough, was from way back in 2012 anyway. Uh, But it was great. And I think the best place to start is with the problem, because so often they use the problem reaction solution template. So even if the solutions proposed are wrong, How would you go about calming the nerves of anyone who's been swept up in the climate alarmism and the constant messaging that we're all going to die soon because we've been so bad? Well, before you just talk directly about climate, you have to look at the whole history of the environmental movement, which really started in the 1960s. And particularly, I mean, it started with Rachel Carson and 
over hysteria about DDT. There's always a kernel of truth, usually, to some environmental scare. Then it's a question of how it's hyped. But the real template for climate came with Paul Ehrlich in the population bomb, which he wrote in 1969. And this book exploded on the international scene and made him a hero. And it had all the hallmarks of following what the climate situation was. In other words, they came up with very scary projections of doom and gloom for population, resource scarcity, famines. And then they said, unless we do the following. And guess what? Their solutions were the exact same as what you'd find with today's version of the Green New Deal. It's all about, we need to take away freedom. We need to take away property rights. We need to give away our national sovereignty. We need to redistribute wealth. We need to empower experts to rule our lives because left to our own devices, we'll mess it up. This was quickly followed the overpopulation and coincided with the global cooling scare of the 1970s. In my book, Green Friday, I have a whole chapter on how the solution to the global cooling directly mirrored everything. In fact, the problem of global cooling, it was man-made global cooling. They talked about literally causing more storms, hurricanes, floods, being bad for wars. They talked about a consensus of scientists. They talked about tipping points. And of course, the solution was the exact same as what we hear today with climate change. Again, more government control, less freedom, wealth redistribution, sovereignty, giving up your sovereignty. It's incredible. It's a, it just keeps recycling. And then, of course, global warming. And then, of course, the 80s, you had Amazon rainforest scares and acid rain and a whole other host of problems, which, again, some of these had real kernels of real issues and needed to be addressed, but not in the same template in which they always came up with, which was global socialism to address all these issues. So anyway, to make a long story short, climate change comes along really in force in 1988, when James Hansen testifies in front of Congress. Also, that's the year that the UN Climate Panel was formed. And essentially, they basically said in 1988, we're going to form this panel to look at how climate change is causing a catastrophe. What was left unsaid is if they fail to find the catastrophe, they fail to have a reason to exist, to have conferences every year for the next 40, 50 years nonstop in the most exotic locations in the world from Africa, South America to Asia, all over Europe, islands, Cancun, Indonesia, Bali. And so what happened is if they failed to find it, they had no reason to exist. So they became a self-interested lobbying organization, this UN climate panel. And it was run by a guy, Rajendra Pachari, later years, who literally said, climate change, global warming is my religion, my dharma. So to make a long story short, Everything became about fear, computer models. And to answer your original question, sorry about the long, long <laughs> roundabout way, on every metric of climate change, whether it's not accelerating sea level, in fact, sea levels have been rising for 10,000 plus years, and it's been about the thickness of a nickel every year. You can't really even determine it. You can look at photos and data from everything from Miami through European cities, and you just don't see much of a change. Yes, it's still rising because we're coming out of an ice age on extreme weather, hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, droughts, wildfires. Even the UN in their reports bury the fact that there's either no trend or declining trends on every one of the extreme weather metrics. On temperature, they do all sorts of slights of hand, but the geologic record shows that the Roman warming period was probably warmer. The medieval warming period was as warm or warmer than today. 
And if you look at the little ice age, we've warming up out of that. That actually coincided with temperature. So the idea that we're in the hottest years on record, it's within hundreds of a degree. You can't even distinguish the hottest years from each other. It's a statistical game they play for cheap headlines. And this is done when I say they, this is NASA, our federal agencies, NOAA. The heads of these agencies love these pronouncements. James Hansen, who used to run the NASA Global Warming Division, was a guy who got arrested half a dozen times protesting global warming. He endorsed a book calling for ridding the world of industrial civilization. He then resigns from NASA. His now his big thing is joining children's lawsuits so kids can sue the government so that we go full Marxist in order to give the kids a climate future that'll be stable. So that's the kind of people we had running it. And on data, everything from polar bears, we've had record number of polar bears. Polar bears are disappearing, but they're disappearing from Al Gore's books and movies. He, <laughs> he made it his number one icon in his first film, and it was had a company book, 2006, Inconvenient Truth. By the time he does his sequel, 2017, his book and movie don't mention polar bears once. They don't exist. Their mm. images don't appear. Why? because they've never count historic population highs. Even indigenous people of the Arctic recognize this, that the polar bears are doing much better and thriving. A lot of it had to do with hunting bands, never had to do with climate anyway. The only danger that polar bears face is in the electrons of the hard drives of the climate modelers who keep predicting doom 50 to 100 years from now. But the <laughs> real world does not bear it out because they're an adaptable species anyway. So on all of those things, it is just the fear is not there. And I set myself to finding all the scientists who were reversing themselves. I have a whole report from years ago on UN scientists who turned against the UN, Nobel Prize winning scientists. I have Obama administration scientists. I have progressive times hero of the environment. Michael Schellenberger actually issued a public apology for his part in trying to scare people about climate change. When he looked at the science, he reversed himself. Judith Curry, who's featured in my films, Climate Hustle, was one of those scientists head of the Georgia Tech Climatology Department in Atmospheric Sciences, she publicly reversed her course when they started looking at the science. So it's been an amazing ride. And most people don't really talk that much about climate in terms of adults. It's not that big of an issue. It's mostly all targeted toward kids. And they're not interested in persuading you now to support cap and trade or carbon taxes because they don't really want your consent or public thing. They don't even want to vote in Congress. The Green New Deal never even came up for a vote. It's only been introduced for PR purposes. They're implementing the Green New Deal through executive order, through all these agencies. So the science of climate change just doesn't matter as much anymore. They don't need to scare adults. They're working on scaring kids to pressure legislators and to pressure the public in general, but mostly they just declare a climate emergency and they're implementing all the solutions they know they never could get passed through Congress and democracy in the same way using that COVID template. <laughs> right on. Well, we are off to the races. You certainly yeah. came prepared. And that's another thing we learned during COVID, that projections and models are not reality and they can be crafted to project whatever future you want. And uh, clearly that was an element there too. but. Going after the kids, I mean, that is really a big concern. It's happening in a few other areas as well. And it seems like it's a multi-pronged approach to driving a wedge between kids and their parents and really getting kids to look to the state for their guidance and look to the state to solve their problems. And I don't know, that's a scary place if you ask me, but I've heard you talk about the fact that 
the debate is not, is CO2 rising? Because apparently it is. Again, this stuff, there's so many people throwing out so many different models. It seems really complicated. But the issue is that CO2 is not really relevant to the temperature of the planet because we can look at previous periods and see not really much alignment between those two statistics, even though the narrative is that 97% of scientists agree, much like COVID, that was what they were saying. But talk to us a little bit about that relationship between temperature and CO2 or the lack thereof and this narrative that so many scientists agree and the fact that that's really just something that they made up. Yeah, what they conflate or confuse is more CO2 potentially leads to a warming effect on the environment, not necessarily overall warming, because there are quite literally hundreds of factors that influence the climate. And it could be everything from tilt to the Earth's axis to water vapor, methane, to clouds, to the sun, to ocean circulation, to volcanoes. The idea that it's one politically selected factor, CO2, which happens to coincide with industrialization and economic growth and long life and lower infant mortality and fantastic improvements in living standards, they coincide with the same Marxist sort of Malthusian mindset that wanted to control that. That doesn't add up. Now, if you look at the ice core data, which came out, I believe, the early 90s from Antarctica, they show that temperature goes up first, followed by CO2. So temperature leads CO2. CO2 does not drive the temperature. I interviewed Robert Giegengack, featured him in my film. This was a liberal academic from the University of Pennsylvania, geologist, been on almost every continent, did hundreds of peer-reviewed studies on climate and geology. And he literally said that 90% of the Earth's history, it has been warmer than today, too warm to have ice at either pole. And 90% of Earth's geologic history has had much, much higher CO2 levels. So we are in the 10% coldest period in Earth's history, and we're in the 10% lowest period of CO2. In fact, we had Will Happer, the Princeton physicist, who's been dubbed the foremost expert on the greenhouse effect, come testify when I worked in the United States Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. And he said the Earth is currently in a CO2 famine, that you know, geologically speaking, we've never been this low. The idea that we're in some kind of climate emergency, climate crisis, it just doesn't hold even the lightest scrutiny of science. It's a political movement. And to back that up, there have been many studies showing that the higher CO2 becomes, the more plant respiration through photosynthesis and the greening of the Earth. In 2016, NASA had a huge study showing that planet Earth was greening and that deserts were actually shrinking. And of course, the climate activists will acknowledge this, but they acknowledge it by saying, did you see that? There's going to be more poison ivy and weeds and invasive species. This is bad. We climb it. We have to get it under control. The other thing they obscure is that cold kills anywhere from eight to 20 plus times higher on an annual basis throughout the world. Cold is the biggest killer. So one of the reasons climate related deaths have dropped 99% in the last hundred years, a whole bunch of reasons, but mostly because we've taken fossil fuels and made an unsafe climate safer by building dikes and dams and bridges and technology with early warning systems for hurricanes and tornadoes and all the infrastructure. So we are much better because of fossil fuel development. We do much better. And that's why our, we have a 99% drop in climate-related deaths. So once you delve into this, and if you, my first book, Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, really goes heavy into the science. And I feature these UN scientists, Nobel Prize winners. I mean, 
you can actually get into this and realize that not only is there a vigorous debate, but that the other side, all they really have is if-then scenarios of this could, might, may happen 50 to 100 years, so we should go full Marxist just in case. And then I also spend a lot of time in both of my books, Green Fraud and Play, showing that even if you accept every one of their scientific premises, no solution they've ever proposed would have any impact on this climate, alleged climate catastrophe. In fact, you know, that was Robert Giegengack, I featured in the Climate Hustle too. He actually said, even if they're right on the science, every proposal they've ever done would have no impact on climate change if, in fact, we are facing you know, a climate crisis. So this is what we're facing. It's a political movement. And, and I think the simplest way to understand that at this point is to look at COVID, because COVID Billy in that two-year, three-year span was the entire three decades of the whole climate movement encapsulated. You could watch everything. And I've done a whole presentation and I'm working on the written report now of Everything I learned during the COVID debate, I'd already learned during the climate debate. Kind of like that 1985 book, everything I need to know about life I learned in kindergarten. Well, everything I need to know about the COVID and the public response, I had already learned in the climate <laughs> debate. And that includes, you mentioned Neil Ferguson. I mean, make a big scary prediction and say, we're all going to die unless we go full totalitarian. In the case of COVID, we had to, quote, copy China. In the case of climate, we had to, quote, give up our freedom, our sovereignty, our private property, our redistribute wealth, turn over our lives to experts. It was the exact parallel. And even more frightening, it was the exact same people. In other words, the World Health Organization, 2018, had declared COVID a global climate emergency. And this is the same organization that, of course, declared the pandemic. And by the way, just this week, they're coming out now saying that under the strict definition of pandemic, we were never actually in a COVID pandemic based on death toll and the death rates. And that's a whole nother emerging field. So we were basically told, unless we do the following, which was copy China, we had WHO officials go to literally go to China and say, we've seen the future and it works. We need to do what China's doing. China should be praised. Italy copied China. And then the United States and Donald Trump was duped and we followed China and an unprecedented lockdown of healthy people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great points. and. Let's get into those proposals they talk about and the green tech, because I like to draw a distinction between CO2 emissions and that whole climate change thing and pollution. Yes. You know, CO2 isn't necessarily pollution. It's actually critical for our ecosystem. But a lot of industrial processes and companies do cause a lot of pollution and poison the soil, water and air of the planet. And I wish that was happening less often. So some of this green tech, like solar and wind, sound good on the surface, but what are the problems with these systems that people don't often hear about? All right, well, that's the, this was the crux of my entire book, Green Fraud. And what's happening here is they're saying we face a climate catastrophe, a climate crisis, a climate emergency. So the first thing they, what does Greta Bloomberg say? We want you to panic. Why would they want us to panic? Why do they want us to panic during COVID? Because when you panic, you don't look at things logically, reasoned, you don't take your time and you're not level-headed. And that's exactly how we ended up with this solar, wind, and EV nightmare that we're in. Because we're in an alleged climate emergency, it's one thing to do all sorts of research, offer versions of solar and wind and EVs for sale. It's completely another to say, we are facing a dire climate emergency. We don't have any time. So we are therefore going to ban gas-powered cars, essentially mandating EVs. We are essentially going to ban the coal industry, essentially having solar and wind come in to replace it. We're going to start going after natural gas. We're not going to allow nuclear to expand. 
and we're going to mandate and subsidize solar and wind throughout the world. And that's basically what's been happening. So the problem is solar and wind and EV batteries and EVs need fossil fuels to be made. They need rare earth mining to be made. And what they're doing is they're giving, we're empowering China by doing all this. We're allowing China to use you know, Uyghur slaves, horrible human rights conditions, underage kids in the most insane human working conditions you can imagine in Africa and places like the Congo and other places where Chinese-owned firms come in. And it's not all bad. It's a form of colonialism. In other words, the Chinese firms will go into the Chinese government, Chinese firms, and either buy up land and or in debt the government to China, Chinese companies. So they'll build airports and infrastructure and electrical grids and roads. And these countries are then indebted to China. Now, on the other hand, they're getting a lot of benefit from that. But anyway, so they're doing all this with huge environmental imprints. It's, I always like to say renewables dig the earth, not in a 1970s Brady Bunch way, but I mean literally in a deep earth, rare earth mining way. And then they, of course, put all it together. Windmills require hundreds of gallons of oil even that operate. Then you have all the battery backups. And then you, of course, have all the same issues you have with regular energy. When you cite these, you know, I've covered issues from solar panels in the Mojave Desert impacting the endangered desert tortoise. You have windmills killing birds and getting exemptions that, you know, no other industry could possibly get for killing rare apex predators, not just common birds, but you know, some of the rare species that are listed on endangered species. So all of that happens. And on every step of that, it is a huge energy input, huge carbon footprint. You know, even when they say, oh, the solar panels are assembled in the U.S. Well, they're all the important mining and production is made in China and shipped over here. I think 80% and 90% of our solar panels are bought from China. And then here's the kicker. Of total electricity, it's still about 5% or less produced after all of that, after 80 billion that Obama spent after the hundreds of billions that President Biden is spending on all the solar and EV and wind mandates and subsidies and tax breaks and all the executive branch orders and all the ESG and all the bank allocations from fossil fuel projects over to these you know, planet saving renewables, they just don't produce the energy. One estimate said that a traditional coal plant, one coal plant worker equals 88 solar panel workers, oh, solar industry worker. In other words, you can have a lot of jobs with solar. Look at all the green jobs. They just ain't producing the energy. Now, people will say, oh, look at that, where record high electrical grid came from renewable energy. Well, first of all, when they use the word renewable, they're conning you because they're including hydroelectric dams and geothermal. Not traditionally what they're talking about in terms of the mandates and subsidies. Solar and wind still only 12% of our electrical grid, which again, is only a fraction of our total energy. Electricity is used for all the power, but you still have all the, you know, the fuel and the gas and factories that can be running on other kinds of you know, fuel. So this is the issue we're facing. And the question is, can solar and wind ever catch up? We don't know. I don't like to bet against any technology, but the bottom line is we shouldn't be mandating all of this now as we shut down our energy they're literally saying the quiet part out loud by the administration, multiple saying, we want prices to be higher because that'll help the green agenda. We have an energy secretary now who wants to keep fossil fuels in the ground. We have prices going up. We have warnings. Our futures like California, where they mandate electric cars, ban the gas-powered cars within four days of doing that. They tell you not to charge your thing because their grid can't handle it because they got so much solar and wind. 
Solar and wind are unreliable. They are just not able to take over at this time. I'm not against them, potentially someday, but it's not ready for prime time. And all they're doing is making electricity more scarce, more expensive, and leading to more blackouts. And we saw it also, we're losing our industrial base because we could be the Saudi Arabia of all energy, whether it's gas or coal, oil, but our, our restrictions, all we've done with green energy is offshore all our emissions to China and India and South America and the Middle East and Venezuela and Russia, where they don't have the same environmental standards as we do. We can pat ourselves on the back, look, we're trying to cut them, we're doing this mandate. Means nothing because global emissions of carbon dioxide, which is supposed to be the goal to stop, keep going up because all we're doing is offshoring it to countries without the same human rights and environmental standards as us. The whole thing literally makes no sense from beginning to end, unless you look at it as what it is, which is a government nationalization of industry, a takeover scheme of wealthy donors and wealthy companies with well-connected, the best lobbyists taking over massive industries. And we're seeing this both in transportation, as automakers are being crushed, China's gonna be the new number one global car maker. We're seeing it in farming, where small family farms owned for generations are being crushed by the likes of people like Bill Gates, who's now the number one single farmland owner. All this is due to climate concerns. And you have the Netherlands, they tried to shut down the farmers, 11,000 farms, the farmers are fighting back. We're seeing Ireland kill 200,000 cows. We're seeing Germany ban meat production to one sausage a month, literally from like over 100 grams of, a 90% reduction, over 100 grams of meat, average German eats to now 10 gram limit, all to save the, they're very open. We're gonna do this to save the planet. We have to fight climate change. And all of this is doing is consolidating our economy into a more concentration of wealth, higher and higher, fewer and fewer people in charge, fewer and fewer companies, less diversity. Think of it like the COVID lockdowns that crushed all the small businesses while retail, corporate, and big tech boomed and made more money than they ever could imagine. And the small independent businesses went down. And that's part of a plan because the small independent businesses are the ones that are going to fight things like environment, social governments, diversity, equity, critical race, and transgender. All these mandates, they're the ones that are going to have a problem with. If they can wipe out as many small businesses as possible, you're going to have all the woke corporate chains that are going to go completely along, whether it's Walmart or Target or you know, whether it's Home Depot, low, you name it, any major corporate chain is completely in on the climate agenda. Every airline can't fly United Airlines without hearing about their commitment to climate and all the emissions, you know, how much you're saving on this flight and how you could do this route to save this many emissions. And it's just become, it's a new form of a cultural and economic Marxism being imposed where we can no longer be free because freedom equals a climate catastrophe. Freedom during COVID equaled a mass death from a virus. Freedom is the enemy here in every scenario that we're talking about, whether it's you know global cooling, global warming, COVID, you know, even same principle with terrorism. You know, go back to 9/11 in the United States, biggest expansion of government, massive spending, the Patriot Act, government surveillance of our own citizens. We did all that. We had to give up freedom because we had to be safe. It's the same principle. It's been throughout the ages. And that's the theme of my new book, The Great Reset, which goes back and to the Roman Republic throughout history. Governments have tried to invent a reason why you can't be free. And that the ruling class, the best institutions, the expert class, the politicians and the business leaders have all come together to always in every society come up with why you can't be free. 
And in my book, I detail how the biggest danger of these emergency declarations going back the Roman Republic through the Middle Ages, through the 1930s, Germany, the greatest expansion of government and the greatest violation of human rights occurred during emergency declarations. And that's what we saw with 9-11. That's what we saw with COVID. And that's what they're trying to do right now with Joe Biden declaring a national climate emergency. He would gain 130 executive powers without democracy, and that would extend to mayors and governors. You see the end game here. This is about control, nothing to do with environment, nothing to do with climate. And I know you asked me about solar and wind. I hope I answered that about 10 <laughs> minutes ago. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you did. Um, yeah. Excellent points. It's like you've done this before. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I definitely loved the new book and Green Fraud. I can't remember which one I read this in, but you mentioned Michael Moore getting kind of kicked out of the leftist club for producing this movie, Planet of the Humans. And I watched that last night. And man, is it eye opening on the subject of that green technology. I would advise anyone to check it out. Yes. Uh, he basically just shows that all these mass green facilities are tied to the grid because wind and solar are intermittent and they need energy always. And they can't store that energy that when they do have all the wind and the sun, they have to use battery backup, which is expensive and they can't do it. And one of the greatest scenes in the Michael Moore film I think it was like a Michigan or Minnesota city where they were doing this big solar display about how they were going to power it. And then someone goes, just like the Wizard of Oz, and they go, hey, what's behind that curtain over there? And they had diesel generators backing the whole display up. So they were trying to claim they were all powered by solar and this whole thing, and it was the future. And meanwhile, they showed the reality was the diesel generators were there backing it up. And that's, he really exposed that fraud. He also, in the movie, two things happened. He exposed... Al Gore, which I didn't expect. Yes. He had Richard Branson. It was like an off the cuff. I don't know if it was actually broadcast or if it was this closed circuit, but it was some show I'd ever saw. And it looked like it could have been, you know, an outtake. But they asked him, is Al Gore a prophet? And Richard Branson does this chuckle sitting next to Al Gore. And he says, it depends on how you spell the word prophet. And they both have a hearty laugh over it, yeah. which tells you it's about the money. But the other interesting thing about it is by doing this film, he I like to say, you know, it's Planet of the of the Humans. What is it called? That was called Planet yeah, of the Humans, right? Yeah. And he was exiled from the Planet of the Progressives because <laughs> he literally was banned. The guy, Josh Fox, who did the anti-fracking film, Unnatural Gas, he led a whole ban Michael Moore. Michael Moore was not used to this. He had his movie taken down, was on YouTube, it got censored, then he had to fight to have it back. I mean, he was fighting his own progressives on this because they couldn't believe he went off the reservation. But he really lays out how solar and wind are not the solution. But the only big flaw of the film is he he's a big believer in population. And you know, a lot of the teachings of the, I opened up the show right, about with overpopulation, which by the way, that is shown. And I, I always like to feature John Lennon early night, I think it was 1971, Dick Cavett with Yoko Ono asking him about population. And he said, that's not a problem at all. This will sort itself out. This is a hysteria. And Dick Cavett was just stunned. I can't believe it. I don't agree with you at all. He goes, I don't really care if you agree with me. John Lennon outscienced all the leading experts of the day. Uh, this is the Beatles, John Lennon. So it was impressive. And if you go back, the new problem of overpopulation is never going to be overpopulation. The new problem is underpopulation. As countries get wealthier, they have less and less kids and their population stabilize. And that's happening all over the world. And so that's the big flaw of the Michael Moore film is he believes in that. But it's an incredible movie because it's just another person who's reversing their views on a lot of this stuff, whether it's the science or the solutions of climate.
Mm-hmm. Yes, well said. And it's funny because if they really thought CO2 was a problem, I would expect planting more trees to be in the conversation, as well as ending this behavior of making every little plastic thing in China and shipping it over here on these massive ships that I've been told pollute more than all the cars in America anyway in a given year. But that stuff never makes it into the conversation. And let me ask you this, because as much as I don't trust politicians and the Davos think tanks, I also don't really trust corporations either. The cigarette industry crafted their own science and lied to us for years. The telecom industry, I don't think is honest about EMF's effects on our health. The sugar industry made their own health science. And there was this story that came out about the oil industry's communications leaking. And the story goes that they acknowledge the damage they're doing to the planet and discussed suppressing or causing confusion in climate science to keep it business as usual. And some people think that's the real story because it rhymes with a lot of other stories. How would you respond to that? Great question. I was in a film called Merchants of Doubts. I mean, they interviewed me. It wasn't my film. And they tried to smear me basically as a, you know, the PR spokesman who's saying that cigarettes are healthy. They didn't do it there, but they were saying that climate change is not a worry. They were saying that was my role, similar to the people who did that. Now, first of all, I've never been a lobbyist in my life. I have no love for any of these big energy companies. If you look at things like ExxonMobil, they support the UN Paris Climate Agreement. They support carbon taxes. They support all this big. And why do these big companies support all this? Because they can absorb the costs. That's number one. They can absorb the costs of all this and they can crush their small competitor and you can have massive consolidation. Just the fracking industry alone, by the way, there were so many what you would call mom and pop frackers pre-COVID. COVID COVID hits, the lockdowns hit, and huge reduction in energy. All these small time people that were booming in all these states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, a lot of them went out of business. Guess what? Big companies came in and massive consolidation, which is just what the government and bureaucrats like because massive consolidation means they get to work with this and they can control it a lot easier than a bunch of you know independent wildcatters out there. So having said that, there's this idea that climate skeptics are funded by the oil industry. It is one of the biggest lies. And I, I spent a lot of time in, I think, both books, but at least the first one, politically incorrect, I know. I, I did it in both. But the idea is one of the biggest, most damning revelations of the Exxon and oil companies funding skeptics. It was 2005, and they had the Union of Concerned Scientists, which is a left-wing environmental group, don't be confused by the name, said that you know, up to 15 to $19 million has been from Exxon, the conservative group skeptical of global warming. They're the mouthpieces of big oil. And then if you look at it and all these other claims that they make, a lot of this is like Exxon gives to First of all, groups on all sides of the spectrum. Exxon gave $200 million to Stanford University, $100 million to Stanford University to study how farming impacts climate change. One United States Department of Agriculture grant of $20 million exceeded all the money Exxon was ever accused of giving to groups skeptical of climate change. And they also give to a whole myriad of groups, left, right, center, and they give to groups that don't even deal in climate. Like if they give money to say a group like the Heritage Foundation, a small part of Heritage's budget and time is actually spent on climate. But all these corporations have always given. So that's not evidence of anything. Now, on terms of what you asked me about, Exxon knew there's been this whole campaign. In fact, I was in a Time, I think it was Time Warner, Time Magazine documentary on this, and I haven't seen it yet, but Apparently, you know, they put me in a 
pitch black room with like one little spotlight. I guess it was to make me look sinister. So, you know, I don't, I don't I, you know, I'll play. If I get typecast as the villain, that's, I'm fine with that. I'm not going to worry about it. I just, you know, they're going to say whatever they're going to say. But I, I never turn down an interview, no matter how much I know they're going to smear. But anyway, the bottom line is this. In the 1970s, there were a whole series of theories. Now, in the early 70s to mid 70s, there was definitely a massive push to worry about man-made global cooling. They thought that aerosols coming from fossil fuel use were going to block out the sun, create global dimming, and then cool the earth. And you literally had some of the same scientists who later became climate alarmists, from James Hansen to Stephen Schneider and others, basically warning of this man-made global cooling. And even John Holdren, Obama's former science czar back in the 70s, was worried about this man-made global cooling. So there was that theory. There was all sorts of just basic, we're coming out of an ice age. We got another ice age. And then there was, there was a whole contingent by the late 70s. It grew of scientists worried about rising CO2. And of course, that goes back to the 19th century, but it was all very speculative. So there's all these theories. So the idea that Exxon looked into it, and they probably had multiple scientists, all these different reports, and they didn't know anything that no one else knew at the time. They had a couple of scientists who thought, oh, yeah, this could be a problem. We need to look into this with more CO2. Other scientists were saying the aerosols were causing global cooling. There was no idea of anyone. So then the people claimed that Exxon suppressed it. Exxon didn't suppress anything. There was a whole world scientific bodies, whole New York Times articles of scientists. Back, I, think 19, I featured this in my first book, 1977 or 78, climatologists debating with meteorologists whether we're going in cooling or warming. No one had any idea, basically. And the idea that Exxon had some secret knowledge and suppressed it from the world and sold their product, and now Exxon's responsible. This is what's called a shakedown. They're trying to get Exxon like they did the tobacco companies, and the tobacco companies now have to pay billions every year to all this, some government consortium of all these states. And then these states are supposed to use that money for suppressing anti-cigarette ads. Well, the problem is these states take the money, but they're not even using it for that. But cigarettes have been replaced by vaping anyway in terms of that. And of course, now they're trying to get vaping to do that. But to make a long story short, this is a shakedown of ExxonMobil. We now have lawsuits basically saying that if there's a hurricane in Oklahoma, sorry, Florida or a tornado in Oklahoma, a certain percentage of those damages should be paid for by Exxon and other oil and coal companies and gas companies because they're responsible for creating those storms. Now, remember, Global storminess on climate timescales, 30, 50, 100 years, are either not increasing at all or decreasing, but they don't care. They anecdotally use a bad storm and claim it's because of fossil fuels. So that whole thing, whenever you hear about Exxon New, that's a shakedown modeled after what they did to the tobacco industry, and there's no science behind it. And yeah, I'm sure they could find papers that Exxon was looking at whether CO2 caused warming and scientists thought it did, but that has nothing to do with anything, because you could find opposite papers at the time and continue to find all kinds of conflicting science. And the idea that Exxon had some special power or knowledge was just literally laughable. Even people like Michael Schellenberger, Time Hero of the Environment, spent a lot of time investigating this. It has completely ridiculed the whole concept of Exxon knowing. It's a shakedown by activists and government officials, mostly Democrat attorney generals, to try to get money out of them modeled after the tobacco settlement. Well, I mean, that's a pretty good response. It is sometimes confusing who knew what, when, but it's never really confusing that controllers like to control. And so they will find a fear-based justification to do that. And you touched on a kind of interesting thing there with tobacco that I have an insight 
into I had a friend who had a, a vape shop in Missouri and there was legislation to shut down all vape shops. And he started to hmm. tell me about that money that all states get because they've done this calculation that cigarettes kill X number of people. Right. So you take the population of a state and you take that number of people and then they get X number of dollars based on that. Well, when vaping was happening, they were making the calculation that not as many people are dying. So the tobacco company's like, well, we shouldn't be, have to give as much money. And then the politicians stepped on and said, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean you're not going to give as much money? Well, we're going to ban vaping then so that we can keep that money train coming in. And my buddy's shop got shut down. And that's just a little microcosm of how a lot of this stuff works. Nobody cares about you. They care about the money train coming in and what kind of control measures and power yes. they can keep. It's absolutely true. Since you brought up vaping, one of the things that happened right before COVID was this Evali or the vape lung illness. Yeah, the popcorn lung. Popcorn lung. But it was a acute epidemic of teenagers and young people that were actually dying of this. At least there's like 50 some deaths, I believe. So both the CDC and FDA knew, and they knew this early. Anyone who studied vaping knew it. These were from black market vapes, not from any shops or stores or reputable online places. These were people selling them on street corners and they had put in some additive that your lung couldn't shake off. And it was like a really bad ingredient, but that's what you get with the black market. It'd be like buying a black market liquor or something or moonshine. You never know what you're going to get, right? And yeah. so what happened was the CDC and FDA literally announced publicly that all vaping should stop. And they did it because this was their opportunity to seize that regulatory control, which had been evading them. And they were able then based on the hysteria of this, and even though that absolute evidence was overwhelming that this was coming from black market. They started banning all sorts of legal vaping flavors. This led to all that. And what it's done, what do you think the result of all that government regulation was? An increase in black market vapes because the government now has regulated the legal ones, which were never the cause of the problem. <laughs> There's not one death that they can actually say was from a legal vape. It was all from this batch that people had made with an additive in it. And so now all they've done is force more and more kids. If you want flavored vapes now, you're gonna have to go to the black market and who knows what's in it. But that actually serves the government's purpose because if more kids die from more black, then they're gonna have more restrictions on legal and then the black market will get bigger. Then they can get more enforcement and they get bigger <laughs> budgets. They can have a bigger crisis. This is the way it works. Ah, oh, let the free market be free, damn it. <laughs> but man, so your Great Reset book, it contains a lot of quotes from Klaus Schwab and his cronies about what they want to do. But let me have you speak about their ability to actually implement these things. How do we know we're not worrying too much about hypotheticals that will never happen? Good question. It's because I like to say this very clearly. It's not a theoretical hypotheticals that may, might, could happen in the future. We are living in it now. We are living in the Great Reset. It's being implemented. We're watching climate lockdowns begin. Just to give you a few quick examples, as I already mentioned, 200,000 cows being slaughtered in Ireland, German meat restrictions coming through, Netherlands farmers being shut down, Sri Lanka, literally the entire government toppled, the highest ESG score and one of the highest ESG scores in the world topples the whole country when they go this experiment. Australian farming being limited. Canadian farming, John Kerry now putting his sights on American farming to restrict. And again, it's not going to do anything to emissions, but it's going to basically wipe out the small independent farmers that are left. 
and consolidate them into a controllable and colludable and industry. So we've already seen them collapse our energy. They're making it short. We already have the UK power chief, Swiss power chief on record as saying people have to get used to electricity only when it's available. Forget about constant electricity. We've seen them collapse our transportation in action. California announced through an executive order of Gavin Newsom and then followed up by the unelected California Air Resources Board, the banning of gas-powered cars by 2035. 20-some states, including my state of Virginia, because we had a Democrat governor, now we have a Republican one, are set to go along with that. The state of Maryland next door. All these states are going along with a actual banning or down to almost zero for gas-powered cars within the next 10 to 15 years, depending on the state. So they're intentionally creating car shortages. This is a big part of, you know, you will own nothing and be happy and everything you want will be delivered by drone. They're going after freedom of movement. We're seeing it happening right now. The World Bank is telling automakers that gas-powered cars aren't going to be funded. Corporate banks are saying they're not going to give out car loans for gas-powered cars. Cities in Colorado, California are banning the creation of new gas stations, creating gas station shortages. Boris Johnson's transportation secretary, no doubt schooled by the World Economic Fund, has announced that car ownership is outdated 20th century thinking. You have business insiders saying we have to get rid of private car ownership. You have people like Andrew Yang, who ran for the Democratic nomination, say we need to have abolish private cars and instead have an app you can just call up and get a car when you need it. The same way you get like Uber Eats or an Uber, but this time you can just get your own, you know, a car will be delivered to you and you can go grocery shopping. Same with pickup trucks. You can, if you have a job, you can go rent a pickup truck for a few hours. This is what they're saying. We're watching this happen. They're creating artificial car shortages. They're creating food shortages. They're creating meat scarcity. They're creating energy scarcity. They're calling misinformation a threat to your health in the age of COVID. It's a threat in the age of you know, your physical harm in the age of climate. They're going after in corporate government collusion, shutting down our free speech. This is all stuff that's happening, not like, well, this might happen and they could do this. This is literally happening. In other words, let's simplify this. The most consequential decisions of our life in COVID in March 2020, in peacetime that we've ever had in the United States, whether you could go to church, work, school, leave your house, go to a wedding or funeral or have a medical procedure, were all taken away without a single vote of any legislator anywhere. There were no town halls, no city councils, no boards of supervisors, no Congress, no Senate. It was all done through emergency decree, through executive orders. That so excited them that the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, announced in June of 2020, just two months after the lockdown started or three months, that this was a rare, narrow window of opportunity by which to reset the world, this time in the name of climate change. And they took that literally. So what they've done is that continuing that collapse of energy, they've gone full head off of going after food, full head going after transportation, and they have made massive gains. Another tangible evidence, France is the first country now to ban two and a half hour flights or less to save the climate, literally to reduce their emissions to meet net zero goals. Forcing people into cars and a train, by forcing people into cars, the death rate will go up. Driving that distance that you could fly in two and a half hours is going to result in higher fatalities because flying is statistically much safer. Now you have Germany, Austria looking to do the same. EU's proposing with Greenpeace support a six-hour flight ban in the EU. This is all a climate lockdown that we're literally staring at. 
On the same token, we're seeing major journals from the British Medical Journal to the journal Nature to 230 journals getting together saying that we need to fight climate change using the same template by which we fought COVID, i.e. authoritarian government lockdowns, no time for democracy. And this is why I say it's happening now. We're already behind the eight ball. It's not, again, none of this is theoretical. This is happening here and now. Harvard School of Medicine has actually said that unchecked climate change will lead to more COVID-like viruses. Rockefeller is now a partnership announced in May of this year with the World Health Organization, the Rockefeller Foundation, to look at how climate is fueling pandemics. So what they're basically doing is saying, if you don't support solving climate change, you're a grandma killer because you're going to be creating a lot more viruses. At the same time, just to recap, they're taking away our meat, high-yield agriculture, our freedom of movement, gas-powered cars. And guess what? No one voted on any of it. There was never a vote. There was never a debate in Congress. There was never a debate in City Hall and legislators. It's just, it's happening through executive order, through executive branch, through administrative state, through departments of each state, whether it's EPAs or unelected boards, like I mentioned in California. This is what we are literally facing in here. Where are we? June of 2023. It's not a theory. That's what my book is. And that's what my presentations are that I'm giving. And that's what all my special reports at Climate Depot are. Literally, just the last couple of weeks have been unbelievable. From the France announcement of the banning of the flights to then all the meat restrictions sweeping through Europe. Keep in mind, they just approved insect powder in the EU as an alternative source of protein. And in both Europe and Australia, they're giving kids as part of a PSYOP insect powder food that go home and pester their parents that they've eaten bugs and there's no big deal. The meat eating, John Kerry announced that they we're going to have restrictions on methane, which is all about cows. Bill Gates, America's number one farmland owner, again, already achieved it. China, a close second in terms of single largest farmland owners, has announced, along with Richard Branson, they're investing in synthetic meat. This is lab-grown meat from steel vats. You get stem cells from a cow or a lamb, and you mix it with the fetal blood, and you have this big thing growing in a steel vat, which then you add coloring and texture and you print it on a 3D printer. Bill Gates says there's no reason anyone in the developed world should be eating actual meat anymore. He wants them to all eat this, what he calls synthetic beef, which can either be the vegetable oil processed or now his lab-grown meat. So this is all here. It's now. No one's voting on it. It's all happening behind the scenes. The same way no one voted for those crappy paper straws we have at restaurants that dissolve in your mouth. <laughs> Do we ever vote for that? No, it's being imposed. The same way all this ESG stuff is happening. It's all being imposed through corporate government collusion and through unelected boards. In fact, the Biden administration announced from day one, Department of the Federal Government was going to be a climate agency. They were going to bypass Congress. Again, they've never had a vote on the Green New Deal. Now, they did pass the Inflation Reduction Act, which was just more green energy mandates and subsidies. But this is what we're facing right now. So anyone who says, and I was interviewed by UKTV, oh, this is a conspiracy theory. No, this is a conspiracy reality. 2023 is the year conspiracy realities outnumber conspiracy theories. <laughs> yes, man, I set you up and you drive it home. This is how the dance is done. And those are all excellent points. And it is the meat that kind of bothers me most. I've had ranchers on the show talking about sustainable agriculture and doing things the right way. And they're like, hey, we aren't the problem at all. And all, also our meat is more nutritious. And it's like this attempt to create artificial demand for lab-made meat and yeah, insect proteins. 
it takes more control away from people because anyone with a little bit of land can choose to raise a cow or raise a pig and slaughter it and feed their family. But if it's all this lab-made frankenmeat, well, good luck accessing that on your own without these companies' approval. So that's where it's another linchpin with this whole social credit thing or digital currency. Like you don't have a workaround because you're eating the cricket powder that comes from the factory and you don't have access to that. And there are no more cows or pigs according to this insane plan. But it also mirrors the same thing with EV cars. Like you think it's more freedom. You are told and marketed to that it's like this limitless energy. Just plug it in, plug it in. Well, what do you do when they don't want you to plug it in? Because with a gas car, you can store gas. You can have gas cans in your garage and no one can tell you otherwise. And you can get wherever you need to get when you want to. But when it's throttled energy plugged in and your battery only gets you 50 miles, you can't do anything if they decide to cut you out of the club. Yes. In fact, you mentioned gas cans. They're actually now all throughout California, Washington State. They're banning gas leaf blowers, gas lawnmowers, gas hedge trimmers along with all the gas-powered cars, and they're turning everything electric and battery. Now, obviously, the environmental footprint of those is probably not much different when you look at it from the beginning to the end, but it's also three times more expensive to go through all these electrical things. So they're just, again, they're burdening who's getting hurt during all this. It's not the wealthy Tesla driver with the high income. It's the poor. It's the middle class. It's the working class. It's those unfixed incomes. It's the small entrepreneur. They don't care. Part of this, and I mentioned this in my book, is they want to crush the middle class and they want to subsidize the poor as voters. And this is one of the reasons the um, guaranteed annual income is now like the biggest thing they're pushing throughout all the states. And even, you know, with the COVID relief was actually like the first template of that. The idea is you crush all their jobs and you have a public that's just, you know, subsistence and with loyal voters who will always vote for the politician willing to keep their subsidies and income coming. And that's really where we're headed. And that's what all of this is. All they're doing is creating scarcity, scarcity in energy, scarcity in transportation, vehicles, plane availability, scarcity in food, which then rises prices. And then what do you think comes right after that? Calls to nationalize all these industries. I go back to the 1930s in my book, Roosevelt's socialist kitchen cabinet advisor, Stuart Chase literally laid out the vision of the Great Reset in the 1930s. And in his own words, it was control of communication and propaganda. They actually use that word. Control of agriculture, control of energy and government control of transportation. So they're about, you know, 90 years late. But I think they're finally seeing the fruits of all that academia and expert talk. We're turning into an expertocracy where every aspect of our lives is going to be determined by what an expert think is good for us. Remember, back to COVID, that was just the Great Reset unfiltered. We got an advanced notion of what it would look like. The idea is they told you you couldn't go out of your home, you had to wear a mask, you had to stand six feet. It was like every aspect, you're like they made these decisions for you and then they mandated it. That is the vision of the Great Reset. The other vision I think it's important to mention is for decades, and I go in the book and show that you know, decades ago, you have New York Times columnists praising China's authoritarian one-party rule. You have the UN climate chief praising China's authoritarian one-party rule. 
and saying that American democracy isn't helpful. You have Justin Trudeau saying he admires China's basic dictatorship. You have Biden administration officials praising China's one-party rule. You have Apple CEO Tim Cook saying that China's values align perfectly with Apple. Well, what did COVID lockdowns do except turn the world into a one-party state? We were a one-party public health state that had lockdowns, stay-at-home orders, mandates, canceling of medical procedures, no weddings, no funerals, no school, no church, and we had no say in it. There was no democracy. It was done for our own good. In the words of Tom Freeman when he praised China, a reasonably enlightened group of people as China has. Well, we were, we were better than that because we were listening to the greatest experts in the history of the world, people like Anthony Fauci and the WHO director, and our CDC, these were people that have PhDs and experts. How could the average parent object to their kindergarten at age five being masked for eight hours when experts with 40 years experience said that that's what they needed to be? That's the world in which we turned ourselves over to. And that's the world which we're still living under right now, as they're literally banning gas-powered cars and meat right before our eyes. And there's been no vote on it. There's no town halls. There's no switchboards at the Capitol lighting up. They realize now that in order to get this great reset, they don't need any of that stuff. They just can pass it right through this corporate government collusion through executive branch and administrative state agencies. Yeah, man, again, great points. It does seem like the new Pledge of Allegiance is to the white lab coat experts. <laughs> yes. And so many of the politicians are part of the Young Global Leaders Program. So they got agents everywhere. And then with all these different sectors of the control pie. They got public-private partnerships working on each component, and they all, I guess, report back to Big Daddy Klaus. And it's just scary how effective they are when the vast majority of the people in my life don't even see a problem at all. And I don't know, I struggle to see how we will make them realize that nobody in power gives a shit about you, and the system does not have your interests in heart. That's like a fundamental stumbling block we have. An ideological thing we can't seem to get over is that they don't have good intentions. Well, and you know why they don't see that? It's very simple. Warren Buffett is one of the biggest funders. In fact, Bill Gates says he's the biggest funder of this Gates Foundation, which right. then gives tons of money to promote critical race theory, transgender ideology. So you have billionaires creating sort of these culture wars by forcing all this stuff, whether it's race or gender ideology. And that's what people end up getting distracted by. Not that those aren't important issues, not that that's not worth fighting, but that's what they divide us on. So in other words, if we're fighting over whether you know women's sports should have a biological man, and this is what legislators and uh, talk shows and people are debating, we're missing the big picture of how they're literally transforming every aspect of our life without a vote, without our consent. And that's part of it. This is all run by the billionaire. Let me give Klaus Schwab some credit because you asked originally about him. This is the guy in 1971 starts the World Economic Forum, and he comes up with stakeholder capitalism. In other words, businesses will not be evaluated on whether they perform a good product, whether they have efficient delivery, whether they bring profits to their shareholders. Instead, they're going to be evaluated on whether they're company is doing good for the world by meeting essentially woke standards, whether it's you know race, climate, or gender. And his genius was he has these annual meetings in Davos, and he has world leaders, presidents, prime ministers, cabinet officials, bureaucrats, senators, congressmen, parliamentarians can mingle 
with royal family, Hollywood celebrities, billionaires and millionaires, all the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and all the business, and they can all get together. One of the people I've termed it, people who don't want to be seen meeting in public can meet there. In other words, if you are the Fortune 500 and you want access to half of Europe's cabinets, cabinet ministers, you don't have to fill out disclosure forms. You don't have to go meeting. There's no scrutiny of where you, they're all there and they can collude. And that's one of the things these meetings are so powerful at. And you can watch what they put out on the stage. I mean, my book is like, okay, here it is. That's the key thing. This great reset in my book. It's not like, oh, I have anonymous sources and I have a secret document. It's like, no, here's a transcript and you can watch the video on the stage of the World Economic Forum of Klaus Schwab talking about brain implants that they want to have so that they can know your thoughts. Here is, you know, actual, this is the BBC, the Washington Post, the New York Times. This is USA Today. This is the UK Guardian. All of my stuff, in fact, my talks are all mainstream sources. Nothing is like, oh, I found an obscure blog or I have a secret document. None of it. And that's what people need to understand. This is all out in the open, but they don't care because what they're doing is this is how you got that corporate government collusion so fast with COVID. If you remember within like two weeks of, or maybe a week or days of flatten the curve, 15 days when everything was locked down, every major corporation almost did the exact same video. We're all in this together and in these uncertain times. I mean, it was like the same language, all of corporate America saying from this. And the same thing happened with the vaccines, everything all saying and the same exact thing, same thing's happening now with Pride Month, with transit, all the corporate, that's what they want. That's why they didn't care when small businesses were crushed, because you know what? They'll give you a guaranteed in minimum income. You'll get government subsidies. You'll owe them votes. And that's what they'd rather have than a thriving private sector that's going to fight and not be part of this woke agenda that they can just you know, have no trouble imposing. 30 years ago, liberals and progressives hated big business called them the bane of civilization. Well, now that they control it, they have no problems with big business. Every corporate board cowers in fear to the woke activists, from Disney to Nike to Major League Baseball to, again, you can name anything, from Walmart to, hell, Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is signed on to diversity, equity, and inclusion standards now. And, you know, this was the CEO, the son of the founder, who was washing a black man's foot on an interview right after George Floyd was killed and the Black Lives riots were going on in cities. This is what Chick-fil-A, people don't realize that. I mean, everything's infected. It's not just Target and Disney. Hmm. Yeah, man. So I have really enjoyed this. You clearly know this material well. It is your job, so it makes sense. But let's tell the people a little bit more about CFACT, of which you are the communications director. What are its goals and how is it achieving them? Well, Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow started in 1985, and we're, we bill ourselves as sort of the free market or conservative environmental group. So we're probably closest to Greenpeace as the opposite side, because we like to do stunts. We board ships, we do skydiving, and we dress up, we'll do wacky stunts. For instance, last year in Egypt, we went to the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, and on our way in Cairo, we went to a museum and we mock glued ourselves to one of their historical things. And we started chanting, no net zero, no climate scare, you know, no climate emergency. We were doing the opposite. We had some fun with it. And then we, you know, we fake handcuffed ourselves like AOC, like we'll put our hands behind our back, got escorted out. So we do stunts like that, but it's called CFACT. And my website is called Climate Depot. It's a project of that. 
My book is The Great Reset. I'm at Twitter at, at Climate Depot, D-E-P-O-T, at Climate Depot at Twitter. So I'm very active on Twitter. Right on. Yes, obviously, that was going to be my next thing to bring up is give people the links and the stuff they need. But your books, Green Fraud, Why the Green New Deal is Even Worse Than You Think, The Great Reset, and The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change. Anything else they should know if they want to dig into this a little deeper now that we're wrapping it up? No, I think I'm doing the speaking tours all around the country. I've already been, and I actually was in the UK last fall. I was in Canada this year. I've been to Detroit and going to Dallas, and I was just coming back from North Dakota, and I did the Florida. So I'm, I'm, it's starting to resonate. I think people intuitively realize that they didn't vote for this stuff. This is being imposed upon them. So that's all. But I guess the best way to keep up with me is at Climate Depot at Twitter and ClimateDepot.com. So thank you. Right on. Well, I know it's a marathon session around here, so I will let you go. But thanks again and keep fighting the good fight. All right. Thank you so much, Greg. Appreciate it. And boom goes the dynamite. How about it? I felt like we needed a climate deep dive. And when I came across Mark, I just ended up liking his approach. He isn't afraid to use some jokes and share some memes. He hits on good phrases like build back bankrupt. And I felt like he knew how to be entertaining with what can often be very dry material. And for the comedy fans out there, I also felt like he sounded a bit like Mark Norman, and that works for me as well. I like someone who's got a thick skin and isn't afraid to debate, not necessarily with me, but just in general. And I felt like he was talking fast enough to fit four hours of content into a two-hour bag, and that doesn't hurt either. But it just felt like an important topic overall because this alarmism is the justification for the next round of control measures, so we gotta break the spell. Not all listeners are gonna be on the same page about this, and even if we were, it's nice to reinforce our thoughts given the onslaught of constant propaganda. But we can also share it with people who are on the fence, if anyone out there thinks we did a good enough job to be convincing. I really did love this overall, but I can't stop thinking about his very first point. Before you talk about climate directly, you have to look at the whole history of the environmental movement. It started with Rachel Carson in 1960 and over hysteria about DDT. There's always a kernel of truth about some environmental scare, and then it comes down to just how it is hyped, is exactly what he said. And it always hurts a little when. There's a comment like that that happens so early in an interview because I know a percentage of people just turn it off and say, well, this guy has nothing to offer because I've made my mind up about DDT. And I get it. Forrest Moretti, I thought, made a really clear argument that this toxin in the gut would sit right next to the spine and it was crippling people in what we called polio. Thus, no polio vaccine was ever needed. We just needed to stop using this toxin in agriculture. Some of the evidence Forrest used to make that point was that farm animals were also developing polio symptoms, and a virus doesn't really do that, but spraying a poison willy-nilly will. So that's no small thing to me. Now, if I really tried to get into that with Mark rather than just moving on, maybe he would have made some good points about how it launched an overzealous environmental movement that I could find agreement on. You know, going back to what he said, there was a kernel of truth. It was just overhyped. 
Maybe if we took the time to drill down on that and clarify, we wouldn't be as far off as it sounds with just a passing statement. Who knows? But as for CO2, I heard a great clip on No Agenda where a senator, I believe, was questioning climate scientists, and he just straight up asks them, given that this is your profession, how much of the atmosphere is CO2? And their guesstimates ranged from like 10% to over 50, if I remember correctly. And if you don't know, take a second to think about it. What would you say? given all the climate alarmism that we hear, I personally was thinking 10% to 15% myself. But then the real answer came, which is 0.04%. That is what all the fuss is about. And according to a general consensus of experts before all this alarmism, if that number drops below 0.02%, global plant life will start to die off. So if we want a green world, if we want big trees to thrive, net zero is not the direction to go. It sounds closer to global suicide and being a proposal from people who seem to hate life, nature, and the planet. I'm not really surprised by that. Another point I had in my outline that's worth making is that I've seen some side-by-side -side images of local news weather segments from the 90s versus the ones they use today, and they will show the exact same hot summer temperatures, but in the 90s image, they would just be yellow and accompanied by a sun with sunglasses on or something goofy like that. And today, the same temperatures are displayed in red with fire emojis and more fear-inducing imagery. And that's a psychological trick that's very much in use and has to be watched out for. But I think it's important to look forward and deconstruct a lot of this stuff because it does kick people into panic mode, even though a lot of people are already there. I mentioned that documentary, Planet of the Humans. It starts with a man on the street segment asking people how long humanity has. And some say just a couple of years, 10, 20 years, numbers that are shorter than an individual's lifespan, you know, on average, which means that a lot of them are living with a sort of mild panic at all times that the earth is going to end before they reach old age which is wild to me, but these people will most likely accept any measures to try to stop what they assume is already coming. I also remember a previous guest of ours who talked about a report from the UK saying that a great deal of children report climate-related nightmares. I believe that was the Dr. Frederick Lera episode, but yeah, you can look at younger generations and they are convinced that they won't live a full life or that having children is pointless or even irresponsible because of this, and to me, that's scary. Hopelessness is not a good mindset for anybody. And all of this is another aspect of driving a wedge between the generations. These younger folks think their parents are bad because they don't get the trans stuff and they fail to do anything about climate change. So for some reason, they default to putting their trust in the general culture and in the state which is made up of people in their parents' generation, and the state is the one who had the power to act rather than their parents? It's weird, but that's happening. And I believed a lot of wrong things in my teens and 20s too. 
but the mind control isn't nearly as bad as it is today, so I feel for them. The only other thing I should mention is that when I stopped the recording and Mark and I were just talking about how it went, I mentioned to him that I was very close to bringing up this criticism that I read from a lefty climate activist about his work, and they made the claim that Mark can't be trusted because he's funded by ExxonMobil and the oil guys. And Mark basically said, ah, I wish you did ask me because that's a totally bullshit claim. Exxon did throw a little money at the organization many years ago before Mark was a part of it. And that's going to be true of most political organizations in this space somewhere because they try to buy influence and they throw a lot of money around. And I think that's a fair point. It's the continued funding that you got to watch out for. So I found that to be a reasonable response to the criticism. I figured I would relay that before I read some of the same criticisms regurgitated in the comments. So anyway, if you appreciated the first hour, in the second hour, we got into how the diversity agenda acts as protection for the darkness and exploitation hidden in the production chain, insights from Mark's Build Back Bankrupt presentation, the long-term seeding of climate guilt, manipulation of the science revealed in the ClimateGate emails, Mark's thoughts on nuclear energy, our thoughts together on RFK Jr., Trump, and DeSantis, real-world examples of climate change credit cards hitting the market, the call to mark climate deaths. That's actually something people are suggesting we do. And then we also talked about Mark's thoughts on weather weapons to justify the climate change agenda. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes. And in a few minutes, you'll be plugged into the full two hour plus feed in the same app you're most likely using now, unless it's Spotify. But the website is built for ease of use on your phone. We have the Netflix category display and a very advanced audio player. Check it out. I'm sure you will love it. And the last thing we do is look at the calendar and see what events are coming up from THC listeners looking to meet more local other THC listeners. And we did get a couple added. Thanks for that. One is in just a couple of days, which a good rule of thumb is to allow two weeks so I can fit it into a couple of episodes and listeners have time to plan. But either way, if you're anywhere near Forest Row, East Sussex, United Kingdom, on June 30th, the Higher Side Chatters are getting together at the Hop Yard Brewing Company. July 1st, we have that meeting of the minds in Auckland, New Zealand. Also July 1st, High Springs, Florida, the High Springs Brewing Company doing it once again. July 15th, the Brooklyn Brewery in Brooklyn, New York is hosting all you lovely New York City weirdos. And there we have it, light but not empty. And maybe more gatherings will pop up. Maybe they won't. That's really up to you guys. But that is the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing it. If you do, plus members, I appreciate you the most. You keep my family in the green and you have the most context for what the show really is and what I can do with two hours over just one. So much appreciated. Take care of you and yours. I'm getting out of here because I've done my part. Your move, climate lockdown liaisons, control measure implementers, and advocates for authoritarianism. Your fucking move. Maybe 
You'll see, goddamn, this plan. No fan spraying on me. Cronies don't you know they control the weather with all the chemicals that they spray. Oh no, it go, it gone. Bye bye. Who I? I think, I sink, and I die. Don't you know they control? Don't you know?